There's not a better way to start today's service and where we're going than that. Can we, uh, can we just celebrate God again, what he's doing through those baptisms of those kids? How much fun is that? Just to be able to see uh, the way that God's working in the young people's lives here at Crossroads. It's really what we're all about here at Crossroads. Uh, introducing people to Jesus, allowing them to experience Jesus and all who he uh, is. Uh, if you are new with us, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here, which means I get the coolest job in all of the world uh, to lead this church. And before we go to our time of sermon today, uh, I want to take a moment to uh, kind of continue the celebration that we're in and, and the praising of God being good with really just highlighting one of our ministries here at Crossroads Church. Uh, this Thursday, we had the opportunity to graduate two, uh, 10 new Stephen ministers. Uh, a picture of them is going to show up right here. Here's our 10 new Stephen ministers. Yeah, you can give them a clap. Uh, if you... If you are unfamiliar with uh, Stephen Ministry, Stephen Ministry is actually named after Stephen. If you've been a part of our Acts series, it's the Stephen that we read about in Acts 7 and 8 who was killed for his faith. That Stephen is what this Stephen, is, uh, Stephen Ministry is named after. And the ministry really is about training people who have the gifts of compassion and care to come alongside those who are hurting, who are you know, having trouble with the difficulties of life and coming alongside them in a way, whether that be a week or, you know, as long as they need uh, to help them through the trials of life, to be there to listen, to support, to, to pray, to encourage. And listen, over the last five years, we have graduated um, 53 Stephen ministers. And listen, 3,500 hours of care have been given uh, to people in this community. And so... It is super cool to be a part of. It is such a vital ministry to Crossroads Church. We're more than just a Sunday morning. Uh, we're about people experiencing God here. And as, uh, as you heard earlier this morning with Jonathan, is that our real vision is to uh, disciple people, our kids and our grandkids, into experiences with Jesus. And oftentimes that means walking with people through the trials and the difficulties of life. And so I'm so thankful for our Stephen ministers. In fact, I'm just gonna ask you to bow with me we're going to just say a prayer uh, for them and for our time together, if you would. Pray, uh, Lord, oh man, we are so grateful, uh, Lord, to be in your presence today. God, we know that your presence is here. Uh, and Lord, we do declare, like we sang in our first song, that you are good. We see your goodness in, in the young people here at Crossroads being baptized. We see your goodness as uh, people are volunteering to be a part of a ministry that helps people through the difficulties of their life. Lord, the reality is, is this church uh, runs on volunteers, hundreds upon hundreds of people giving their time and their resource and their energy uh, to make this church what it is. And for that, God, I am so, so very grateful. God, today as we uh, look uh, to your word, I pray that you would open our minds to what you have for us, that we would lean in uh, to this such an important story that is before us today, uh, Lord, that impacts each and every one of us. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so 2,000 years ago, there was 120 or so disciples huddled in uh, this room. And about 40 days earlier, uh, they had watched Jesus, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, uh, the one that the Israelites had been waiting on from really the beginning of time. They had watched him die the horrifying death on the cross, that he was crucified. They watched his body be taken off that cross, placed into a tomb, a boulder rolled over that tomb, and three days later, when it felt like all hope was completely lost, Jesus pulls off the resurrection. 
and he walks up out of the grave. And over the next 30 days or so, Jesus walks with these disciples and others. He talks with them. He eats with them. He listens to them. And then after about 30 days or so, he looks at them and he says these words to them. He says, you're going to be given a power. This power is called the Holy Spirit, and this power will enable you to carry the gospel in Jerusalem and eventually to Judea and then to Samaria and eventually to the very ends of the earth. And after he said that, he begins to ascend into heaven. Like literally, he begins to float away, like right up into heaven. And these 120 disciples are, are left sitting there. They huddle together in this room and they just wait. And they wait, and they wait. I'm sure, you know, some small Bible studies broke out, some groups of prayer uh, broke out, but mainly for 10 days, they just huddled in this room and they waited. And I imagine from time to time, they would get up and, you know, a few of them would stretch their arms and the leg and they'd start conversations a little bit like this. Hey, hey, do you remember 10 days ago when Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit? What do you think that is? Man, I, I have no idea. Do you think it'll be cool? Yeah, I think it'll be cool. What do you think it's going to do? Well, I don't know. Do you, think, do you think when it comes, like, well, no? Well, Jesus did say that it was going to be powerful. Like, Jesus gives these words to these 120 disciples. They huddle in this room, and he just leaves them there to think about, to ponder, to, you know, to, to, just, to just sit in all of these questions, so many questions. And maybe what's the most astounding part of that story is not even actually found in the Bible, but rather that we, we sit some 2,000 years later, almost 7,000 miles away from that little room that all of those people were huddled in, worshiping the same Jesus, reading from the same Bible, through the same spirit that was promised by Jesus. I mean, it's so amazing to me. And it's not just us. I mean, if right now, current estimates are, is that there are about 2 billion Christians alive in the world right now. And we have to ask the question, like, like, how did that happen? Like, how did the gospel be so empowered that it moved from 12 to 120 to 2 billion people in this moment? What empowers that kind of incredible growth? And I realized as I asked that question that we're a bit removed from that. So let me make this a little bit more personal for you. Let me show you a picture. Anybody know who this picture is? <laughs> this picture is you. Well, maybe not exactly you or me. This is actually taken about 19 years before I was born. But more specifically, this picture is us. This is, this is Crossroads Church in 1961 with about 25 or so people huddled around a shovel breaking ground at 104th and Huron for the new building that is now our community center. And here we are six decades later, six decades later, 1,100 plus on a weekend, 3,000 people who call this their spiritual home. And you have to ask the question, how does something like this happen? What empowers that to happen? See, at some point, we have to come to grips with the simple reality, the simple truth that there are things that occur in this life, things that occur in this world that cannot simply be ex uh, explained by, by human power, by human ingenuity, by a good marketing plan. No, there are things that happen that are deeper. There are things that happen that are more profound. And the only way in which we can explain it is by divine. And that is exactly, precisely what we're going to talk about today.
If you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about a story that is so significant, so important, that it literally turns the Bible upside down. It's a story filled with trances and visions and, and bacon. And as we looked into the story, it is this, this moment of God's perfect timing, his perfect timing, and his, de- his demonstrated sovereignty, where step by step, God takes the apostles, those first disciples of Jesus, and through them pushes the gospel through the city of Jerusalem, eventually to the region of Judea, to the half-Jews of Samaria, eventually into Gentile-run cities like Lydia and Joppa, and then eventually to Caesarea where it is revealed to them, to, to these early apostles, to these early disciples, that there are no unclean people. That because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that everybody's sins can be forgiven. And it's in Acts chapter 10 that we start to see the vision that God has that will later be explained in the book of Revelation more clearly for us. But this vision that God is drawing together people from every nation, every tribe, every language. That every one of the people made in the image of God, every one of the people died for by Jesus equal in every way before this holy God, coming together in what we call the church. This countercultural movement that's creating a new, kind of, a new kind of human being. In fact, if you've been here through the course of this series, we have seen time and time again this, this movement, this countercultural movement happen where person after person becomes new, new values, new identity, new community. And so today we're going to finish that story from last week. And we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 44. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Now, just before this point where we're picking up, Peter, the apostle, the leader of the church, has has summarized the story of Jesus. It's what we call the gospel. That he's standing before a group of Romans who are polytheistic, that is, that they, that they have, you know, a whole ton of gods. And he looks at them and he says, at the end of your story, you're going to realize that there is one God. And that that one God is judge. And that you're not going to judge him, he actually gets to judge you. And so at the end of your story, the thing that ultimately matters is Jesus. And every single person, he says, has the opportunity to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and when they do, they will receive forgiveness from their sins. We pick up the story in verse 44. Here's here's how it continues. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, summarizing the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Mark underline highlight that, fell on all who heard the word. Now, what I want to do for a few moments is I want to invite you to think deeply and to ponder deeply uh, this idea of the Holy Spirit. We recounted earlier the moment when Jesus gave the disciples this this real mission in Acts 1.8. He says, the power is coming to you, the Holy Spirit is coming to you, in order that you might carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, if you were a disciple during this time, it would not be too far-fetched to think like Jesus How are we going to do that? Like, how long is that going to take? How many years do we need to learn all the languages of the entire world? I mean, let's just remember, this is before Google Translate, right? Like, like that's not a thing yet. 
nor are like textbooks full with how to learn languages. That's, that's not happening yet. To the ends of the earth, how are we going to communicate the gospel to the ends of the earth? The next thing that we see in the story is God miraculously giving them the languages of the people to the ends of the earth to be the witnesses that he is calling them to be. That God gives them the mission. He supplies the power, and this power is what we call the Holy Spirit. And we see in Acts chapter 10 here that it's falling on everyone who believes. Now, earlier in Jesus' life, he actually spoke about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, it's one of the most important chapters that we have when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And in it, Jesus is explaining and really preparing his disciples for when he goes to the cross. And what life will look like after his death, ultimately his resurrection and ascension to heaven. And he's looking at the disciples and and he tells them these words. He says, nevertheless, this is chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage... It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper or the spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, for the disciples here, they're standing here and they're going, Jesus, (laughs) what? Like, who's this helper that you're talking about here? Like, Jesus, we hear you talking words, but you're not making any sense, man. It's to our advantage that you go. No, 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 Jesus, you're here. We're good. You don't have to go anywhere. And Jesus, no, 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 no. You got to understand this. It's to your advantage for me to go so that the helper, the spirit can fill your lives. Now, to understand what Jesus is really getting at here, we have to take a step further back into the Old Testament. When we're reading the Old Testament, the word that's primarily used of spirit is the word ruach, ruach. It's used over 400 times in the Old Testament, and literally it means breath. That's what ruach means, breath, like the necessity of life, breath. The first time that we see the word ruach used is in the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, chapter 2, the ruach is hovering over the deep. We see it in Genesis chapter 6, 1, where it's translated for us the breath of life. In Genesis chapter 8, it's the ruach that God sends as the wind that recedes the floodwaters in Noah's story. When we get to Moses, Moses says that the ruach, that God gives the ruach to life, that all living things have the ruach of God. That we get to Job, and Job says that as long as I'm alive, I breathe through my nostrils the ruach of God. We make it to the Alpha Prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, and he uses the phrase Ruach Yahweh, or the breath of God, the spirit of God, in describing how the Messiah would come and be empowered by the spirit of God. In fact, we see this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where the prophet writes these things. And the spirit of the Lord, that's Ruach Yahweh, shall rest upon him, speaking about the Messiah here, And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We see this prophecy come alive in the New Testament in the book of Matthew when Jesus enters into the waters of baptism. And in this moment, the heavens part, there's this voice that comes from God that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the next thing that we see is the dove, the ruach, descending upon Jesus. Now, when we get to the New Testament, 
The word that's primarily used for spirit in the New Testament is a Greek word, and it's the Greek word pneuma, like pneumatic. Like think of, you know, tools, you know, like tools that are run by air. It has the very same meaning as it does in the Hebrew. The understanding is that this is the necessity of life, this air, this, this spirit of the almighty God is at work. And we see it at work not just in Jesus' baptism, but also in his resurrection. That when Jesus is resurrected, his disciples, the 12 disciples, well, 11 at that point, are like hanging out in this room. The doors are closed and locked, the windows are closed and locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears before them, and the guys, they start freaking out, because we would freak out, right? Like all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up, and he's like, calm down, you know, peace be with you. It's me, I'm back. And then the next thing that we're told in the Gospel of John is that Jesus breathed on them and he says to them, receive the pneuma of God. Receive the pneuma of God. We move from this moment with the 12 disciples to this room that we've been talking about where 120 disciples are now hanging out, praying, waiting for whatever's next. And after 10 days on the day that we call Pentecost, this wind fills the room and not only fills the room, but the pneuma fills the people in the room. That Jesus' words, I must go because it's to your advantage that God's spirit can come, is seen lived out in the Old and the New Testament. The spirit of God, when we think about this, is not some forgotten God somewhere out there. But rather the Ruach, the Pneuma, the, the Holy Spirit is the energy of life. It's God's spirit in us. The third member of the Trinity, alive, giving us life, energy, a supernatural power, animating our lives to live out the mission that Jesus, our Savior, gives to us. Now listen, when we open up the scriptures, we do not see the Spirit empowering people to live ho-hum, casual Christian lives. When we open up the pages of scripture, we see the Ruach hovering over the deep. We see the Ruach take a shepherd boy and turn him into a king. We see the Ruach fill warriors like, like shepherds. In the New Testament, we see the Numa take fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and bring about the message of hope. We watch the Numa move in a person who is absolutely set on destroying the church and through him, making him the greatest spokesman ever for Jesus. And now we see the unthinkable in Acts chapter 10, that the Spirit of God is falling not just on Jewish people as God's chosen, but now on Gentiles meaning that the salvation of God is coming to everybody in the same way and that the Ruach, the Pneuma, the Holy Spirit is empowering their lives, verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Remember, Peter going up to Caesarea with the soldiers was like, hey, I need some boys who will come with me in all of this. They're hanging out with Peter. They see all of this happening and they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and, and extolling or, or praising God. Then Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's Peter. He's preaching, and he hits the point where they must believe. 
They must believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior in order that their sins are to be forgiven. And he's got this like, you know, really captured and, and this group is like, you know, they are an eager audience. And they hear the story of Jesus and immediately they understand it and they believe. And Peter is like a typical pastor. He just keeps on talking. And God's like, Pete, you can keep on going. I'm going to do something else. And so all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts to fall on these Gentiles. Everybody's amazed. Peter finally gets what's going on. He stops his sermon and goes, hey, anybody got any water? We need to get these guys baptized. And they enter into the waters of baptism. Now, this is so fun, but there's also a few things that we need to talk about here. First, if you're keeping track through our series, this is the third story in a row where we see people or a person come to faith and immediately, immediately get publicly baptized. That baptism was an important part of the early church. That you believed and then you were baptized. You believed and then you were baptized. Now, it's worth noting here the order in which it happens. First, they heard... Then they believed, they were saved, they received the Holy Spirit, which was evidenced by speaking in tongues and giving praise to God, and then they were baptized. That the order here is important because baptism was not a means to their salvation. That is, that baptism wasn't a condition of their salvation, but rather was evidence of their salvation. The 13 students that we celebrated at the beginning of this service, when, when we watch that and when we clap, what we're, what we're watching there is not the means of their salvation. They're not saved now that they're baptized, but rather their baptism is the evidence of their salvation. And if you're here today and you're a believer and you've never yet been baptized, we would love to have a conversation about that with you. Because we truly do believe that you're missing out on some of the riches and the goodness of Jesus in your life by not being baptized. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to talk about here is the whole issue about speaking in tongues, all right? So put your seatbelts on. We're about to dive into the deep end of the mysterious and charismatic part of our faith, all right? When it comes to speaking in tongues, what we're talking about here is languages. That in the Greek, the word that's translated for us tongue literally means languages. And this gift of speaking in tongues is really a language given to a speaker who had never learned that language in order to minister to someone who does speak that language. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians as a miraculous gift. Now at Crossroads, we believe that all of the gifts of the Bible, there's 21, 22 New Testament gifts given, that we believe all of those are still active and vibrant today, including the gift of tongues. However, there is a belief system in Christianity that teaches if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really have the Holy Spirit. That if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really have the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that they teach that is because there's three specific instances all in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, here in Acts chapter 10, and also in Acts chapter 19, where the receiving of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by, evidenced by, speaking in tongues. Now, as I say that, also know that these are the only three instances in all of the New Testament where that happens. 
In fact, through the book of Acts, we have thousands upon thousands of people who give their life to Jesus, who trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and nothing is mentioned about whether or not they spoke in tongues. In fact, nowhere else in the New Testament is it taught that speaking in tongues is only evidenced by, or I'm sorry, that receiving the Holy Spirit is uh, evidenced by speaking in tongues. In fact, the New Testament teaches the opposite. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes these words to us, starting in verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. These are all gifts that we find in the New Testament. Verse 29, are all apostles? The implied answer is no. Do all do, are all prophets? Do, are all teachers? Do all do work of miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The implied answer to all of these is no. So Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the gifts that are given to you by the Spirit, and I will show you a still more excellent way. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that every believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit, but not every believer is going to speak in tongues. That every believer in Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit empowers our lives, and through the Spirit we are given gifts, but not every believer is going to have the gifts in tongues. Let me make this a little bit more real. Let's use my life for an example. I have never, ever spoken in tongues. In fact, when it comes to the giftings that God's given me, I don't have any of the miraculous gifts. I don't have the gifts of miracles. I don't have the gift of exorcism. I don't have the gift of tongues. I don't have the gift of healing. But what I do have is the gift of creativity, of administration, of word of knowledge. That every believer in Jesus is given the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit is given gifts to accomplish the good works that God has, has given to you. That as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2 is actually given to us before, before even the foundations of the world. And so here in Acts chapter 10, the focus is not on the gifts of, of speaking in tongues, but rather the generous outpouring of God's Spirit. This, this flood of God's spirit falling forth on God's people. It's an absolutely amazing moment in biblical history where these Romans, who they saw as unclean, is now receiving the Holy Spirit just like they had as Jews. Like God is doing something previously unimaginable. That he's bringing people together in community who were once enemies and reconciling them in Jesus. And as you can imagine, this, this is not going to come easy for them. Like, like you're talking about reversing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of prejudice and of hatred. It would only make sense that the Spirit would empower them to be able to speak languages that one another could, could understand. And for us, some 2,000 years later, we, don't, we can't even imagine how controversial this is. But we see it in Acts chapter 11. We see it in Acts chapter 11 when Luke, the author of this, of this book, writes these words. He says, now the apostles, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So word spreading that these Romans, these unclean Gentiles are now receiving the word of God. 
So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, (laughs) that's just awkward, right? I want you to honestly know that I had so many jokes about the circumcision party, but I just decided to cut them all, okay? So when Peter went up, the circumcision party is criticizing them, saying you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Peter, do you know what you've done? Like you have defiled yourself before God. We just don't go around sharing Jesus with everybody. What are you doing, Peter? What are you doing with eating with the unclean? What are you doing hanging out with them? Now, this circumcision party, they are Jewish Christians, all right? And before we're like too tough on them, just remember last week, it took God three tries to get it through the hard head of Peter, right? These guys haven't had that experience. They're just getting all of this for the first time. And let's be real, some of their, some of their beef, it's legit because they're worried about themselves. They're like, Pete, <laughs> if the religious leaders in Jerusalem get word of this, man, we're toast. Like if the religious leaders in Jerusalem get wind that you're teaching Jewish people that it's okay to eat with Gentiles, to hang out with Gentiles, man, the persecution that we're dealing with now, that'll be child's play compared to what's coming. I mean, how about a little self-preservation, buddy? And Peter looks at them and calmly speaks to them, verse 15. He says, I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, talking about Pentecost. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words, if God's with them, who are we to stand against them? Welcome into the family. I mean, what an incredible change happening right here in Acts chapter 10. So before we leave this remarkable story, we have to ask the question, what does this all mean for us? I mean, outside that the majority of us here, you know, probably 99% of us are Gentile. Like, what does this What does this mean for us? Or more specifically, maybe this question. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know that the Holy Spirit is is indwelling, residing in you? Well, first, know that you cannot experience saving faith without the Holy Spirit. When you feel that nudge from the Holy Spirit... When you, when before you were a believer, you felt like, you know, there was this God out there and, and maybe this God was speaking to you and, and, and all of that's like going on. What we would say is that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's why Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 2 that your salvation is not your doing, but actually the complete doing of God. It's the complete work of God. That the Spirit is moving in you. And if you're here today... You're here today because you would say that there's something that's drawn you here, like you got questions that you just need answers to. We believe that you're here because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life right now. Now, the second thing is this, is that the moment that you are saved, 
the Holy Spirit indwells your life. The Holy Spirit goes from, you know, working outside to actually, actually coming in and being a part of your life. The way that we talk about it is, is that you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. That we say that the presence of God is here because the Spirit is in you as a believer. The way that the New Testament talks about this is like a temple. That your body is a temple and the Spirit of God is filling that temple. That's the, way, that's the way it's spoken to us, that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have been filled or baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that filled the Old Testament prophets, the same Spirit that filled these early believers now lives, now resides in you and me today. Which means, number three, that after that occurs, the Holy Spirit will give you some kind of gift to build up the church. Now, this is, this is remarkable. Because God's very spirit is here and lives in you if you've placed your faith in Jesus. And just like these first disciples, these early disciples were called to be witnesses, so too are you called to be witnesses. And just like these first disciples were given the spirit to empower them as they move the gospel in their world, so too have we been empowered to move the gospels as witnesses for Jesus. That you have been given a gift, a specific gift or gifts by the Spirit to do the work that God has given you to do. That you have not been left out of this. And for some of you, those gifts might be like miraculous and spectacular, or you might look at your gifts and say, these are mundane and ordinary, but the gifts that have been given to you, the Spirit-driven abilities given to you are going to excite you because now you are a part of a movement of the gospel that started with 12 and then went to 120, and then went to tens of thousands, and then to billions. And it's that spirit that will keep taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth, changing lives, creating new people, new values, new identity, new community. That's what Jesus meant when he says it is to your advantage that I must go so that the Spirit of God may come and fill your entire lives, leading you, empowering you, animating your life in order to fulfill the mission that I've given to you. For some of you, you're here today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd encourage you to do that. That the Spirit is at work in your lives that Jesus is the means of our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins by what he accomplished on the cross. And at the end of the day, we, we believe that you belong here. We believe that you belong as a part of the family of God, that Jesus died for you, that you are equal in the eyes of God, and that you too will receive the spirit of God to animate and empower your life to live for God. Can we pray? Father, we come here today, Lord, talking about your spirit your spirit filling our lives. And so oftentimes, God, we, we think of your spirit as like the lost, the lost part of the Trinity. <laughs> and yet today, the Holy Spirit residing in us is, is your spirit that empowers us. That it actually lives inside of us. And that you've given it to us, you've given him to us, not so that we live home, hum, casual lives. But you've given him to us to empower us, 
through the gifts to accomplish the works that you set aside before even the foundations of the earth. (laughs) Who are we that you are even mindful of us in that way? Father, I pray for those here today. Maybe they're new, maybe they've been here for a while, but they come with their questions. They come searching for answers. Lord, I believe that your spirit is working through them. And Lord, as they hear your spirit, as the spirit nudges their heart, Lord, I pray that that they would be responsive. Knowing that you're not some God just out there, but that you're the God who came here and died for us. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Today we gather, if you're near a point of wanting to have a conversation about what it looks like to follow Jesus, we would love to have that conversation. We'll put our text line on the screen at 720-513-1933. You can just text the name of Jesus and a real person will get with you uh, to have that conversation. We gather together as a church celebrating communion. And as we do, we remember the whole reason that we're able to celebrate. The reason that we gather some 2,000 years later is because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross by the breaking of his body, by the spilling of his blood, three days later walking out of that grave. We know that it's his body being broken that paid for our sins, the blood being spilt that paves the way for our salvation. And so today as a church body, as a community, as a family, we eat together. And we drink knowing that our salvation is secure because God's spirit is in us. We're gonna continue in our worship. If you need prayer, anytime over the next 20 minutes or so, I'm gonna invite you to make your way over to the banner for prayer online. You can click the button. In-house, I'm gonna ask you to stand as we sing these songs to our good and great Lord. Sharonda, lead us. Hallelujah. We know that God is the Father